Shapeshifters on The Money Show. Tonight's shapeshifter is a man called Franz Grenier. He's the chief executive of the South African Institute of Race Relations. And he's very kindly, um, before we talk about you, just talk about this 950-page tome. That's what it sounds like. This is the South Africa Survey 2013. It's been going a while, I suspect. Yeah, this is, first came out in 1933. Uh, the institute itself that I work for was established in the 1920s. Okay. And right from the get-go, has a very interesting approach to South Africa. Rather than being the typical type of activist organization, it's going to find the hard data on what's actually happening in South Africa with the view that exposing that will be a powerful commentary on the injustices of the society of 80 years ago. We've continued to produce the South Africa survey over the the many decades we have produced it through the apartheid years. We continue to produce it today, and it has grown in, in, into a beast of a, of a book. It's, <laughs> a, it's a it's a tough thing to write. I tell you, if, you, if you're one of its authors, you've got a you've got a tough life putting it together. And it's a non-judgmental look as well, because you have to take the cold data, the official, the public data. You've got to take the data. You've got to present it in a way that is agnostic. You you can't make a judgment. You know, many decades ago, Smut said that South Africa is a country where the best and the worst never happens. And it's so true about the South Africa. Was that Jan Smuts? It's actually, it was Jan Smuts. It's it's actually very difficult to take the survey and come to hard conclusions. And we do a great amount of work in a consulting division that we run for corporates in South Africa. And one of the first things I tell them when I walk in with them is, is you've got to understand that once you're done with me this morning, you're going to understand less about South Africa <laughs> than when you started. But that's the real world. But that, you challenge preconceptions. That's what this, this book challenges you preconceptions. You challenge preconceptions. I mean, in, in the break just now, you commented to me that, according to a table you saw there, the murder rate in the country is down 50%. Since 1994. Since yeah. 94, It is down more than 50%. It's absolutely true. And if, if murder is your benchmark of safety and security, we're a much safer society than we used to be. But, but the, over the same period... Uh, your armed robbery rates have picked up, and if you drill down within the armed robbery subcategory to house invasion robberies, that the ones that we're the most afraid of of, of all, two, three hundred percent increases over the same time that the murder rate is dying. And that's the difficulty, because that's yeah. the reality. So if someone asked me a question as simple as of all this research that you guys do, a whole team of searchers sitting in a think tank, is South Africa safer? 20 years later than it was, it's actually very difficult to give us a, a short answer. You're less likely to be murdered, but you're more likely to be robbed, and you're more likely to be robbed in your own home. But then you start to disaggregate the data mm. further. If, if you drill down into specific police precincts, which we're able to do now, we can show you, for example, that Parkview as a whole has some terrible incidents, but generally it's, it's, it's got a crime problem on a par with the European Union. But move five or six kilometers across Johannesburg into Alexandra in an area which, which the, the bulk of the population is living in uh, 20 avenues uh, crossed by seven streets. You can look at 100 to 150 murders a year yeah. with, within that geographical space, big population. But the effect of being exposed to that degree of violence. And that's why we're quite sincere in saying to people, if, if you want to bring us in to help you understand South Africa, we're going to leave you more confused than when you started, but we leave you in a much stronger position. Because the moment you think you've got it, and, and I've, I've been sitting in this group now for 10 years, so I've, I've learned this on a few occasions. The moment you think you've got it, you finally understood. You now know <laughs> you're at your most vulnerable and you're going to make the worst investment decisions or business decisions because you can't know that. 
Certainty is futile and seeking to find that certainty is just going to lead you in the wrong direction. You've got to take incomplete sets of information and make the best leaps of faith that you possibly can. And if you're doing that, you're planning for the real world. And if you make a leap of faith that is inadequate or inaccurate, you haven't committed you 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 have to be careful to commit to a particular a particular leap of faith because you have to be flexible. You have to be able to change. You have to be able to be agile in this environment. A concept we struggle to carry across to companies we deal with is that the future is plural. There isn't a single future. There no. there, there isn't an analyst that can have such perfect knowledge that he can take you to a future point in space and time and say that will happen. It's impossible. At at any point in space and time, there there are probably, we usually are able to get to three or four different and diverse futures for South Africa. We produce roadmaps that will lead you over the the intervening period into the future that will materialize. But those futures are are, are very, very diverse. A book that comes out in about a month from now uh, titled South Africa's Next Ten Years, we we finally, after many years, written down the methodology and the theory and then produced the the scenarios for the morning that we wake up after our 2024 election. And they're extremely diverse. In in, in one, the DA has has had a leader sworn in in front of the union buildings is leading the country. In another one, a, a very nasty regime is running the show. A third one sees ANC reformers turn the country around. And GDP growth levels hit 5% and no one sees it coming. Now, people say to us, now, which one of those do you guys, do you feel? Because you must feel things. Do you feel it's going to happen? We say to them, it's very dangerous to say. Because as soon as you fixate on one another, can happen. And the exa- we, we cite a lot of examples because we're challenged on this so often. And take the Rubicon speech. Uh, 1985. Think, yeah, August 1985. Mm. Pierre Vier Prime Minister, f- waves his finger at the world. Says South Africa will not reform. It, it won't change. His words, we will not be pushed around. Mm. Ten years later, Mandela sworn in. Mm. And five years after that, the last leader of the National Party is an ANC MB, cabinet uh, minister. Yeah. Cabinet minister. Cabinet minister. And he's still there. And that's how quickly the world can change. So when we start producing scenarios. I've got goosebumps. Absolute goosebumps. Because that's the, the trouble with, with analysis is you can take any piece of data and it can tell you what you want it to tell you. And that's very, very dangerous. Let's find out more about France Crenier because I, mean, we, I want to talk more about this book into the future because I think there's, there's a wealth of, of great knowledge um, stashed in it. Um, where were you born? Born in Johannesburg. I probably see myself as a free stater. The, 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 I, I live in Johannesburg. I was born in the free state. So I see myself uh, as a Joe Burger. Uh, yeah. belong to a clan of Cronyers that have been uh, sort of invested in the free state for well over 100 years. Have you got Boer War heritage? Absolutely. General Pete Cronier who yes, was the hands you know, yeah? It's actually quite a nice story because I, I write a column in Report newspaper and I'm sometimes not very popular with the <laughs> readers of Report <laughs> and the very clever ones write to me and say you're the same as General Cronier, <gasps> surrendering your entire commander and your entire folk and just giving up at the first sign of trouble. So, yes, a long history. Um, I mean, the Cronier's in South Africa, you can date back to the late 1600s. French, French Huguenots? French Huguenots through Holland into South Africa. And in fact, if you're interested in the Cronier history, which, which, which I certainly am, we've actually taken it all the way back to the town in France. But they had two brothers arrived here. Pierre and, 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 and Etienne, and one of them had children. And out of that line, all the Cronyers in South Africa today Extraordinary. have been uh, so 
produced. Bread, uh, to a certain extent. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't seem too badly off for it. Um, but you, you went to, you went to a decent school. Um, uh, you, you went to St John's College. Um, for a cronier in what the the nineties, yeah. late eighties and nineties. Uh, interesting decision. I, I, I might have ended up in Yansel Year. The story goes that my mother felt that the headmaster at Yansel Year smelt of brandy and therefore. <laughs> <laughs> Allegedly. Could yes. have become a complete burki, but I didn't. Um, St. John's College, very special place. Um, wonderful privilege to be able to be educated there. Did terribly badly academically, though. I mean, a horrible matric. I mean, it's been, you know, this week as people phone you and say, well, you're journalists and what do you think of the matric results? You've, you've got to be you careful. You don't feel that, that, that you're, too, you're fit to comment. Yeah, you've got to be careful that you're not too uh, dishonest here about your own performance in matric. But you, you can um, handle a cricket bat in your time. Yeah, a lot of sport. Uh, a lot of fun at school, really enjoyed school um, yeah. and a, a very privileged environment to be in. When did you join the police? I went to Wits University in the just over the period of the transition and over the five years that I spent at Wits, I joined the South African police, I was a reservist um, who operated in a number of units over time, uh, mostly sitting on the um, northern side of Johannesburg in Alexandra, the the old police base in Kew that was the home of the high-risk unit. Another great privilege, you know, you come out of that um, very privileged northern suburbs environment and suddenly you're thrust into a world that you didn't know was there. Yeah. And it's uh, it's an incredible thing. You know, you could sit in... Alexandra in at the most terrible crime scenes. And if you were in the right part of Alexandra, you can see the spires of sand. Absolutely, yes. And the, the incredible experience is, is dealing across both. You, you might deal with a, with a, a, a crime of some sort in Santon and, and face a very irate housewife, rightly so, saying how, how terrible it is and, and you guys and the police absolutely useless, you're doing nothing at all. Perhaps her car's been stolen and the house has been broken into. And you really want to say to her, I want to take you with me and show you just mm. two kilometres across the road what's going on there. Mm. Because you're right to be angry, but it is nothing compared to the horror show that was a weekend in, in Alexandra 15 years ago. How does, how does that shape you today, though, having been a member of the Flying Squad at a time of... Um, the political bloodletting of the late 80s and early 90s that was transforming but violent crime, a sort of non-political crime then was rearing its head in many areas. I'd, I'd say to you it probably had as great an impact on me as anything. Uh, it's certainly been a better education on South Africa and I think more useful in my current job than anything that I might have learned at university. Yeah. Uh, you see what did you the, study at university? Uh, politics and, and economics okay. and so on and then uh, I, I later went on and, and and spent a lot of time doing scenario planning, which I've actually just completed. Um, but, uh, you know, that I, I really, you know, so sometimes you, you, the idea is brought out, should there be a conscription campaign again? And the Institute historically was a strong part of the anti-conscription movement in the yeah. country. But I think if more South Africans could get the opportunity of doing something like that, and just seeing what the other side is like. You'll never, you don't live there, you go home to the privileged background that you come from. But just to get the insight is a very, very valuable thing. And again, a great privilege, and I'm very grateful that I did it. And uh, I think if you've got the chance to do something like that, uh, you will be much better for it if you yeah. make it out on the other side. And, and emotionally intact as well, because you must see stuff that 
Well, you've got to get out at the right you. time. Yeah. Um, I think one of the sad things about the police is to see the permanent force members that couldn't get out, yeah. that are exposed to the horror all the time, and eventually it takes a, a toll on their relationships and their families. Yeah. No, it's and tragic. I mean, the stuff we see coming out of badly there. wrong. And when you look at the behaviour of the police today, um, it's does it it's give you empathy for police behaviour? Enormous or? empathy. Yeah. Those guys, you know, that the thing is, they don't. It would if you haven't been there, you won't understand. But they don't see. What that what they are doing is as bad as human rights groups see. You know, that, that, From your comfy couch, you look at it and you go, tragic. And you're right, and it is tragic, and it is terrible. And dragging someone behind a vehicle or uh, your news bulletin earlier, that, that chap who died with a falling off in Yala, or, or jumping out or being pushed out, or whatever tortured the case in was. an Yala, whatever it was, is, is terrible. And the officers responsible for that must be brought to book, of course. But if you could get an insight into what those guys see you would understand it differently. It's about context. The it's, consequences yeah. must still be there for Absolutely. Them. That's the sad thing. Mm. But it, it, it is an experience that breeds that kind of behavior. Mm. For them, it's a normal world. That's the world yeah. that happens. Nah, it's, it's awful. You, you spent time in a Land Rover driving uh, across the African continent, another, uh, another seminal experience, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, was that after police? Amazing. Uh, yes, I'd, I'd left university and I'd spent a year in the United States, where I'd, I, I have a very odd background considering what I do today. I'd, I'd taught riding lessons and taken uh, groups of Americans on trail rides through um, parts of New England. There's your freestyle background coming through, yeah. Well, exactly. That's how I managed to get the job. <laughs> so I've never seen a dress ordering or anything like that. But, but I, I know the front I mean, end of a horse. I wasn't yes. quite the pony club, but I knew that two sides of the horse, one from the other. Um, group of school friends, uh, we decided to do the trek. And we took a year off. Uh, a lot of that was spent in preparation, some of that learning how to f- change water pumps in the Land Rover garage in Cape Town. And we drove from uh, Rhodes Memorial up to the Mediterranean. Uh, drove for, I, I guess, now seven or eight months. Fantastic experience. Before um, And also before it was trendy, I suspect. Yeah, before it was trendy. Look, we went the easy way. We went up the east coast and the central part of Africa. Yeah. The west coast is a. I mean, I mean that's tough. Yeah. Uh, you're a real adventurer. If you even today, if if you can do the west coast, Sierra Leone, Liberia, uh, through the deserts of Chad all the yeah. way into Libya, if you can do that, you're you're a serious explorer. The east coast is is absolutely different story, yeah. and and the central parts of Africa. Um, Still uh, not easy at the time, and I think we were one of the earlier groups that went up and did it. Now it's been done in, in a fire engine. It's, it's been done in a Rolls Royce. Yes. <laughs> and, and you get these incredible people mm. that, that then completely take all the sort of romance and, and adventure out of our trip by sort of cycling it. Well, and, and a, a fabulous man exactly. who worked here 20 years ago called Adrian Horsman, yep. an Irish journalist who rode his bicycle to come and do the job for the 1994 elections. Yeah, exactly. And, and people that cycle around the continent now. No, they're mad. Um, they're it, mad. A, a great experience too, and you could see doing it at the time what we now see in the trends in Africa that it's starting to look good and it's starting to take off. And, and a story that very few people believe is we didn't pay a bribe. Not once? Um, not once. Not once. Look, we were well planned. We were, we fortunately, the, the, the chap in our group who, who planned everything, planned it excellently well. I mean, he saw, we sort of woke up and he told us where we're going the next morning <laughs> and what was there. Um, 
And we didn't try and rush through border posts, you know. I mean, you'd stop and, and, and get out the sort of camp and, and, and start making lunch and then wander over to the officials and then they realised you're prepared to sit here for a few days, chat to them and eventually an hour or two later talk about getting through the border. And it went very well. Wonderful experience. Now quite relatively easy to do. Uh, you can do the easiest way, London to Cape Town in three months in a Land Rover, and you will not face terrible dangers yeah. or uh, wild beasts or uh, anything of that nature. And again, it's, it's, I think it's important to have those experiences. That but all of, all of these experiences shape you. I mean, not a great matric. You spend time with the police. It gives, you, uh, it gives you a perspective on the world. You go logging in the United States. You teach horse riding. You drive, drive up through the African continent. You joined the Institute of Race Relations uh, 10 years ago. Um, right. You've now become its chief executive. Uh, what is your role? What do, you, what do you see your role as? You've given us a, a flavor at the beginning talking about the data and the stats. But are, are, you, uh, are you stirrers? Are you informers? Are you catalysts for change? What are you? We're a think tank, and what we're trying to do is influence policy in the country. And for the first 80 years of our history, a lot of the focus was, for obvious reasons, on political freedom. And to a great extent, South Africans now buy into that. But we're a country that contradicts itself because our buy into political freedom stands starkly against the lack of economic freedom in yeah. the country. And it's, it's not just Julius Malema. Julius Malema has done a wonderful thing because he's put economic freedom on the map. But South Africans would never dare try and suggest to a political party what it should do or how necessarily it should be registered or who its members should be. But, but be an entrepreneur and start a business. And, and suddenly the regulators are all there. And the same people who are commenting and don't interfere with us in the media. How dare you regulate us? We're journalists. I was saying regulate them, regulate them. <laughs> um, they must be... They, 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 Nobody said we weren't hypocrites. I mean, a, yes. a journalist I spoke to today, someone who had... Um, I've got great respect for, if, if he's listening, mustn't take it the wrong way, but used the words corporate agenda in, to talk about business. Well, of course they must have a corporate agenda. That's we need the investment. We need the growth. We need the entrepreneurship. That's the only way this thing works. Can you be objective? As journalists, we are supposed to be objective, um, and there are different levels of objectivity possibly. As a think tank, are you designed? Are you structured? Are you, do you intend to be objective? I would hope that when you take the long view on us, and it's a long history, you would say overall these guys tried to straddle the middle ground. When it comes to particular issues, we don't even try and go for it. It's so difficult to do. How, how must you be objective on the question of the behaviour of the police in South Africa yeah. or objective on the role of the mining industry in the country and drawing investment in? Depending on the issue, you will always be, to a certain extent, on the wrong side of the divide. You'll never get it right, and, and that shouldn't put you off. But overall, are you, in our case, we're a classically liberal think tank. Yeah. We are big on economic freedom. We are big on intellectual freedom. We are keen on, on, on very small governments. The, uh, the best cabinet minister we could, we could have, the one we'd welcome, even if we had to have another one, is the one whose job it would be to go around to all the other cabinet ministers and say, do you know that you are responsible for 200 laws? Yes. Which of these do you actually require and can we scrap the others? I, I hope Trevor Manuel would do that job as his minister of planning, but uh, it, it's, it hasn't gone that way. It, it hasn't gone that way yet. Um, we, we, we need to wrap up, unfortunately. I'm having a fabulous time talking to you. But how do you get funded? Because funding comes to objectivity as well, doesn't it? 
to a certain extent, look, we're very reckless with how we treat donors. If, if you try and... <laughs> no, and, and the attitude in the place yeah. is the right one for a think tank. If Our view is that if we have to find something or do something or say something that is so politically incorrect and so terrible that every donor leaves us, every client deserts us, we'll do it. Even if and it we've, needs we've thrown out, We've yeah. thrown out significant amounts of money and people that are close to us will know that. We make half of it ourselves through the sales of, of, re, of, of reports and, mm-hmm. and briefing corporates and the like. That subsidizes us to make that same stuff available for free to civil society groups and journalists and so on. About... Um, a certain portion comes in from our own investments. We're very fortunate to be in that position. And then um, groups who like us for what we are, and the very few of those around in South Africa, funding groups, will put money into our programs and we will run programs and, and projects for them. And that's how we get through um, every year. It's a bit of a hand-to-mouth existence for us, but we do manage to maintain a full-time team of 25 researchers and analysts.